I invite you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be looking at Ephesians 3 verses 9 to 13 this morning. So Ephesians 3 verses 9 to 13, and this passage brings the, really the first half of Ephesians 3 to a close. And uh, before we read our whole text, I want to remind you of, of how this chapter began. Uh, in Ephesians 3 verse 1, Paul wrote, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then we see that dash, not a hyphen, but that dash that indicates that now Paul is going to go on a a rabbit trail of sorts, but it's a Holy Spirit-inspired rabbit trail, a sanctified digression where he is going to um, teach the Ephesians 2,000 years ago and, and teach us today a few very important things. And and this is all brought about as he mentions the fact that he's writing to the Ephesians from this Roman prison cell. And a couple of things that Paul covers in this digression that he uh, interrupts himself with from verse 2 through the end of our passage today through verse 13 are the following. First, he teaches us about the mystery of Christ. That mystery of Christ has been referred to three times already in Ephesians 3. We'll see it referred to again in our passage. But this mystery of Christ that has now been revealed that the Gentiles, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles, the Jews and the non-Jews, anyone and everyone, no matter where you're from, no matter what your background, your heritage is, if you are in Christ, then you are now fellow heirs members of the same body, partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And Paul's going to keep, he's been talking about this since the second half of Ephesians 2. He's going to keep talking about it in our passage today in Ephesians 3. Second, though, Paul explains his calling as the apostle to the Gentiles. This calling to to preach the, the unsearchable riches of Christ, which we looked at last Sunday. And then today, our passage really wraps up this inspired digression with Paul expressing his concern that the Ephesians not lose heart over him being locked up in this Roman prison. Put another way, these verses today are meant to be an encouragement to Paul's original audience 2,000 years ago and an encouragement to us today. You see, Paul ends this section in verse 13 by saying, I ask you not to lose heart. And in this passage, he gives, um, he, he gives several reasons. We're going to group them into three headings for our sermon. Three reasons that Paul gives for why we ought to not lose heart, but rather to be encouraged. And I hope you'll listen for those reasons as I read the passage to us. Remember, our passage is from verse 9 to verse 13. But I'm, I'm going to read from verse 1 all the way down to verse 13 to just remind us all of the context. And so here now... God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men 
and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. And so we're going to look at these verses, verses 9 to 13, under three headings. See, Paul says, do not lose heart. Instead, be encouraged because of, first, God's plan for the church. Do not lose heart. Instead, be encouraged because, second, all Christ has accomplished for you. And then, thirdly, because future glory far outweighs present suffering. Those are our three headings. God's plan for the church, all Christ has accomplished for you, and future glory far outweighs present suffering. And so first, let's look at God's plan for the church. And and I'll reach back to verse 8 and 9 together to, to have the whole thought here. Paul writes, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, you may remember last week that Paul's making up a, his own word here. He said, I am the leastest er of all the saints. You go to the bottom of the pile and I'm below them. I am the least of the saints. And Paul's not saying that because he has low self-esteem. But Paul's saying that because he's growing and maturing as a Christian. And he's growing in his understanding of just how holy God is. And he's growing in his awareness of the depth of his own sin. And he's growing in his awareness and his appreciation for how, how incredible, how extravagant, how unsearchable the riches of God's grace in Christ for sinners like him, like us, truly are. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So Paul's calling as this apostle to the Gentiles was to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. And in verse 9, to bring light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. And so there in verse 9, we see that word mystery. I've already said, we've seen it three times already earlier in this chapter. Here we see it again for the fourth time. And whenever we use that English word mystery, you know, we're often uh, using it in, in the context of, you know, there is someone did something and we're trying to put together all of the facts, all of the clues so that we understand who did what, right? Who did it? Like in a, in a murder mystery, But that's not the way that Paul uses the word mystery. 
He's using it a different way. He's referring to a mystery that has been a secret, but now it's an open secret. It had been concealed, but now it's been revealed. And this is a mystery that we can never piece together ourselves. This is a, a mystery that, that we can never look at all the clues, put it all together, and figure it out for ourselves. This is a mystery that we can only understand and we can only know by divine revelation. That God has to reveal it to us by his spirit, by his word. And, and that's what God has done. It's what God has done to Paul. And Paul is now preaching this, the fullness of this mystery to the Gentiles, to the Ephesians, to the world. And notice in verse 9 that this plan was God's plan from the very beginning. So it's the mystery hidden four ages, four ages in God. It was hidden in God. In eternity past, when God the Father entered into the covenant of redemption with God the Son, so that in the fullness of time, God the Son would take on flesh, dwell among fallen humanity, live, die, rise from the grave to save all those God the Father gave him to save, to bring all of God's people all of the way home. See, this mystery hidden for ages in God refers to God's plan of redemption, his plan of salvation from eternity past, which could only be known to us by divine revelation. Thus, it was hidden for ages. It was hidden for ages in the sense that Yes, the Old Testament scriptures were filled with shadows and even explicit promises of God's plan of salvation, God's plan of salvation for the world through the Savior who was yet to come. But now the point being that Paul's making is that after Christ's incarnation, after him taking on flesh, after his life, after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension back to God their Father's right hand, now this mystery is now an open secret. Now the shadow has given way to substance. Now the promises have given way to fulfillment. This glorious mystery, this gospel, these unsearchable riches in Christ, this plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God has now been revealed. It's now been revealed to God, to Paul, by God's divine revelation. And Paul's calling is to bring light for everyone to God's plan of redemption through his preaching and ministry. So you see this in verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. So what is this mystery? Here in Ephesians 3, Paul says, This mystery declares that through Christ's person and work, Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles, Everyone and anyone from every tribe, tongue, nation, people group, country, continent, backgrounds of all types, if you are in Christ, you are incorporated into the same one community, one spiritual family, one church, all on equal terms, equal standing with no distinction. And if you look at verse 9, notice that last phrase. Who created all things? Why do you think Paul included that? You think Paul was worried that, that we would forget kind of you know, God's resume? That he had created all things? 
that Paul's making a point. That Paul is saying, the same God who created all things, the same God who created the universe, has now begun a new creation. A new humanity. A new people for himself. See, this is what Paul's been talking about uh, the second half of Ephesians 2 through our passage today. I'm thinking specifically about Ephesians 2 verses 14 to 16. Paul wrote then, for he, talking about Christ, for Christ himself is our peace. The hour is Jews and non-Jews. The hour is, is Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews, for Christ himself is our peace, who has made us, Jew and Gentile, both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Remember, this, this wall of hostility, this, this, uh, this, this law of commandments expressed in ordinances, referring to the ceremonial and the civil law that we see in the Old Testament. How, remember, we talked about this you know, months ago, how this was akin to scaffolding on a building. Whenever you're building a new building, you've got the scaffolding there while the building is under construction. But there comes a time, in the fullness of time, when the building has been built. And so the scaffolding goes away. So what Paul is saying is that the civil and the ceremonial law that we find in the Old Testament, that was like the scaffolding. And now it's the, in the fullness of time, now with Christ coming in his life, death, and resurrection, now that dividing wall, that scaffolding, it comes down that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. One new man, one new humanity in place of the Jew-Gentile distinction, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Put another way, Paul includes that phrase, who created all things, to remind us that God created the original humanity in Adam, in the first Adam, and he failed However, now in Jesus, the second Adam, the last Adam, he has come. And he succeeded where the first Adam failed. And now he has created in himself a new humanity. As commentator S.M. Ball puts it, Paul could have said new people. But the focus here is on a new human race that is unified as one new man. This single new man is the bride of Christ, created out of both Jews and Gentiles who were formerly dead and at war with each other. See, Paul's saying we are all members of the same body, of the same spiritual family, because we're all united to the one head of the church, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, what Paul's been saying for these two chapters now in Ephesians is so much more than merely Okay, Jesus brings different types of people together so that they would like each other a little bit. He's saying something so much more, so much more, more radical and more wonderful than Jesus helps you know, Jews and non-Jews get along, play nice with one another, kind of coexist. What Paul's saying is, you are no longer who you once were. You've been born again. That you're now a new creation. 
that you've been raised to new life in Christ. Don't primarily think of yourself the way you used to think of yourself. Don't primarily think of yourself as a Jew. Don't primarily think of yourself as a Gentile. You are a Christian. You're a new kind of person. This is what Paul has been talking about for these last two chapters, and he's telling the Ephesians, I ask you not to lose heart, because this is what God is doing in the church. As Pastor Richard Phillips puts it, Jesus brings us to God in such a way that he also brings us to one another. He gives us a new life and a new identity, which now we share with our brothers and sisters in him, in this new spiritual family. That this is the most radical way of making peace by actually making us one. That we are not merely a social club. We are the new creation brought about by the Spirit of God through the resurrection of Christ, the holy society of heaven, living in this present evil world. The Paul saying, do not lose heart, rather be encouraged. Be encouraged by God's plan for the church, what he's doing in and through the church. This one new humanity, this, this new family. Now, and I'll... Um, this was pressed home to me this, this, this past weekend, and I'll admit, this is, a, this, is a fairly, this is a fairly small way. You might even say a superficial way. You might even say the story I'm about to tell you is this analogy illustration is a little bit self-indulgent, and that's okay. I, I, I will accept that. Um, I'll try not to do it very often. Uh, but this past weekend, I was out of town. I had a wedding to do, and Alicia and the kids were here. And my, my son had his first middle school football game, okay? And so he's a little guy out there. He's a sixth grader, but he got to start. He started at inside linebacker, and this is the self-indulgent part because I used to play inside linebacker, so it, you know, it warms the cockles of my heart to, to see him doing that. Okay, but then, but then Alicia sends me, she's sending me updates, um, and we had to figure out, okay, who was actually scoring and those sorts of things, but she was sending me updates, but then she sent me, though, two, two videos, two videos of two interceptions that he made. One of them, he ran back for a touchdown, right, which, which was awesome. It was awesome, okay? And so here's the point about the church's family, that what I did, I contacted three people to begin with. I sent them, okay, to the text message that has my side of the family on it. I sent them to Alicia's side of the family. Thirdly, I sent them to Kirby Smart, the head coach, University of Georgia, okay? <laughs> But, but then, but then, in all seriousness, I began to send them to some of you. And the reason why I began to send them to some of you is because over the last 14 years, you know, you are, this place is, you are more than merely people, okay, who come to the church that I work for. Right? That's what happens the longer you're in a church that it really, you really begin to feel like members of this one new man, this one new humanity, this new spiritual family. And that many of you over the years, I mean, you, you know my kids. You've gotten to know them. You've been surrogate grand, grandparents and aunts and uncles for them. You've attended their games. You, I, knew, I knew that many of you would care. Not all of you, but if you're interested, let me know, okay? And uh, I'll be happy to say, he's, he's available for autographs after the service as well. 
We can work out some NIL deal or something like that. But, but the point is that what Paul is saying to this Ephesian church is, I ask that you not lose heart. Instead, be encouraged by God's plan for the church. Then I, ho- I want you to notice, I want you to notice what Paul says next in verse 10. V- verse 10 is a spectacular verse. It's a verse that, I've already read it to you once today, and I don't know how many of you noticed how spectacular this verse is. But Paul says that while the church is this new family, what he says is that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are taking notice of the church. Look at it. So that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It might be hard for us to believe, so let me read it to you again. Through the church, that the manifold wisdom of God is now made known. Now that word translated manifold, it it literally means many colored. And it was used in ancient Greek to describe everything from flowers to crowns to embroidered cloth, woven carpets, and even, even a, a version of this word was used to describe the, the richly ornamented coat of many colors that Jacob gave to Joseph back in the book of Genesis. So what Paul says in verse 10 is that the church, made up of redeemed sinners from all walks of life, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews, with all of our sin, all of our weaknesses and our failures and our warts and our wrinkles, all of our difficult personalities, our various preferences, different backgrounds, education levels, zip codes, ethnicities. Paul says the church is like a marvelous painting made up of all of these brilliant colors, all making known, all declaring, all revealing God's wisdom in the perfection of his design. And yes, the church reveals the manifold wisdom of God, yes, to the watching world, but look at verse 10. Notice that the watching world is not the audience that Paul speaks of. That's not the audience he has in mind. You see, I don't want to go beyond what the text says here, but it seems to me, looking at verse 10, the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places are the angels and the archangels and possibly even the fallen angels. And they're all taking notice of what God is doing in and through the church. And when we combine this, what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 12, we realize they're eager to learn what God is doing through the church. Listen to what Peter wrote. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, whenever the Old Testament saints were eagerly waiting the coming of the Messiah, that's what he's talking about, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that, you have, now, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Look at this last phrase. Things into which angels long to look. Eager to look. So it's as if this great drama is being enacted. 
And history is the theater. The world is the stage. Our triune God, he's the author, the director, the producer, the writer. And the audience, according to Paul, is the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And who is the actor? It's the church. Now you may ask, why didn't God pick a better actor than than that, than us? But the church is the actor. Listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. The apostle is asserting that what is happening in the church is so stupendous, so glorious, that even the bright angelic beings who have spent their entire existence in the presence of God, even they are staggered and amazed at what they see in and through the church. These angels created by God have always been immediately in the presence of God, but according to Paul, what takes place in the church is something that even they had never thought of or imagined. It surpasses even their knowledge, their comprehension, even their imagination. And what do they see? I mean, they see sinners saved. They see lives transformed, families transformed. They see groups of people the world would would otherwise say would hate each other, but instead they see groups of people embrace one another as friends and family members. Now, is this church that that they're looking at, is it perfect? No, of course not. But what Paul says is that it's through that church that God is making known his manifold wisdom to these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, so so look, look at verse 10. I want you to be honest in the quietness of your own heart. I mean, do you believe this? I mean, what do you really think about the church? I mean, have you given, I mean, you're here, so you haven't totally given up on the church, but have you been tempted to? See, it breaks my heart whenever I hear of people who have. You know, people who would say things like, okay, I'm a follower of Jesus, you know, but but I, I have no time for the church. Or that, you know, now I see my primary ministry calling is, is outside of the church or, or beyond the church, as if the church is something that Christians are to, to, to one day move beyond, move past. Right? It, it hurts my heart, and yet I also understand it. You know, because I, I was saved and became a Christian outside of the church. And even when I went to seminary, I had no plans of ever being a pastor. Certainly not your pastor. I, I never wanted to do that. I thought, you know, being a pastor is so boring. It's the same thing over and over and over again that what I want to do, I want to be on the front lines. I want, I want, I want to help plant churches. I want to do evangelism. I, I, I want to, 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 to maybe be a missionary overseas. Now, at the time, in, in my youthful zeal, I didn't think about, okay, well, if you plant a church, then you become a pastor. Or, you know, and, and, if, and, if, and if you lead people to Christ then eventually they, they form a church and you become a pastor. And so I didn't realize that. But then once I did, I embraced the call to the church. But do you see what Paul is teaching us? 
If you want to know what God is doing in the world, what God is up to in the world, you look at the church. The church is central to the heart of God. Central to the plan of God. Central to the purpose of God. Even with all of its setbacks and failures and disappointments and weaknesses. See, God is always doing so much more in and through his church than we realize. And so the point that Paul makes is, therefore I ask you not to lose heart, but rather be encouraged as you look at and he's reminded of God's plan for the church, that the church is central to his heart and his plan and his purpose. And the second thing, though, he says to the Ephesians is, I ask you not to lose heart, rather be encouraged whenever you remember all Christ has accomplished for you. And so look with me at verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, all of this, the salvation of sinners, Jews and non-Jews incorporated into the same one community, one family, one church, on equal terms, equal standing, without distinction, the, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the making known of the manifold wisdom of God through the church, all of this is because of the redemption accomplished, realized, accomplished by Christ Jesus our Lord. And the eternal purpose that God the Father has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord points to eternity past. When God the Father entered into this covenant of redemption with God the Son, so that in the fullness of time, God the Son would humble himself, take on human flesh, dwell among us, live a perfect, sinless, righteous life, and die the atoning sacrificial death on Calvary's cross in our place to fulfill both the obedience required of man and to bear the full penalty and wrath rightly imposed on man. See, put another way, God's eternal purpose was for God the Son to live and to suffer um, to accomplish the fullness of redemption for all those God the Father gave to God the Son to save, to bring all of God's people all of the way home. And Paul says, I ask you not to lose heart, but rather be encouraged by remembering all that Christ has accomplished for you. And it's all yours. It's all ours. It's secure. We cannot lose it because God the Son has indeed realized, he has indeed accomplished the fullness of our redemption. Now look with me as we combine verse 11 and verse 12. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So we, Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles, all who are in Christ, we all have the same boldness. We all have the same access with confidence to our Heavenly Father through Christ. And I fear that we, we often fail to appreciate how extraordinary this freedom of access to God the Father really is. I fail that, that, that now, you know, 2,000 years after Christ's life, death, and resurrection, that we forget that before Christ accomplished his eternal purpose, only the high priest could ever enter the presence of God in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And that was only for a very brief period of time. And only one time a year on the Day of Atonement. 
If anyone else dared to boldly enter the Holy of Holies, then it meant death. However, because of all Christ has accomplished for you, dear Christian, you can and you should boldly and confidently go to your Heavenly Father in prayer. He wants you to do this. He's never too busy for you. He's he's never distracted. He's never bothered by you. You always have his full attention. As S.M. Ball puts it, the church has the ear of the sovereign king of creation. Paul says, do not lose heart. I ask you, do not lose heart. Be encouraged. You always have the ear of the sovereign king of creation who listens with real interest. It's never that he's, okay, he's kind of listening, but he's finishing an email. Gotcha, okay. No, he's listening with real interest and compassion to those who are now members of his own family, his adopted children. The question for us is, do we really believe this? Do we believe that this this freedom of access is ours and that we can come boldly and with confidence to our Heavenly Father? You know, it's not just Paul who says this. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, I know many of us know this, but I hope we will begin to believe it. We will begin to live this out. I mean, can you imagine how believing what we read in in Hebrews 4, what we read in Ephesians 3, verse 12, how it ought to transform our our prayer lives. If we not only know it, but we really believe it and we begin to to incorporate it into our lives, it gets down to our heart. You see, God is your heavenly father. Jesus is your great high priest, and he has purchased the freedom of access to your heavenly Father through his life, death, and resurrection. You are united to Christ. And in in him, in Christ, you have freedom of access to your heavenly Father. You are a child of the King now. And you can and you should pray anytime, anywhere, for as long as you want about anything. See, Paul says, do not lose heart. Instead, be encouraged. Though I'm in this Roman prison, I can never lose my freedom of access to my heavenly Father because of my union with the risen Christ. He says, do not lose heart. Be encouraged because the same is true for you, dear Christian. And then finally, Paul says, do not lose heart. Instead, be encouraged because future glory far outweighs present suffering. So look at verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now in Paul's letters, he has so much to say about the connection between suffering and glory. He says it in a lot of places. Okay, now there's something different about verse 13, but but let me, I'll mention to you a couple other places though, 
where Paul talks about our suffering and, and our glory. And, and these two verses I'm going to mention to you are worth memorizing. Okay, it's worth committing them to memory. First, Romans 8.18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Now, these two verses make clear the point that glory which awaits, the glory that which, which awaits those of us in Christ is far greater than our present sufferings. Okay, but, but these verses are different than verse 13. These verses are talking about our present sufferings and then our future glory, but that's different than what we read in Ephesians 3, verse 13. Look again with me at that verse. Paul says, So I ask you, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. You see the difference? This verse speaks of suffering and glory, just like those previous two verses, but this one's different. See, Paul sees a relationship between his own suffering and the glory of the Ephesians. So let's think about this. How can Paul's suffering be their glory? How can Paul's suffering be the cause of their glory? How can Paul's suffering be the cause of their glorification? I'm glad you asked. Listen to how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. Suffering and glory go hand in hand for Paul. The relationship is never simply chronological. It's never simply suffering now, glory then. Although that's true, and we see that in, those, in Romans 8, 18 and, and 2 Corinthians 4, 17. But it's never simply that. It is causal. Glory because of suffering. Indeed, for Paul, suffering is the raw material out of which glory is created. But here Paul claims that his suffering has the Ephesians' glory in view. Indeed, his suffering is their glory. Certainly, the glory of the Ephesians lies in how much he is prepared to suffer for them. He loves them that much. But more is in view. Paul's suffering for them has their glorification in view. He endures everything, opposition of all kinds, suffering in different dimensions, for the sake of the elect. The suffering of Jesus led to his glory, but it also leads to our glorification. All suffering that is experienced in Christ as part of our union and communion with him makes us like a grain of wheat that falls into the soil and dies in order to bear much fruit. I think that's the point that Paul's making. That Paul's own suffering for the sake of the gospel, this gospel that, of unsearchable riches in Christ that he preached to them is why he's in prison. That's why he's suffering. So his suffering for the sake of Christ has already bore much fruit in the Ephesians. For their glory. For their eventual glorification that Christ will be sure to bring about. Sinclair Ferguson ends with, Who but the all-wise God would have thought of producing glory out of suffering? So look again at verse 13. I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, 
which is your glory. See, I think Paul's saying something like this. I know you are prone to lose heart, but don't. I know it may be very discouraging to learn that I am still in this Roman prison, but do not lose heart. Suffering is part of the plan and purpose of God. That in Christianity, the suffering of the cross is the path to victory. And death is the way to life. And what Paul's saying is, I will gladly suffer in these chains for preaching the gospel of Christ to you if it means you are saved. If it means you and your families are saved. That your sins are forgiven. That you're born again, you're given new hearts. That you're adopted into God's family. That you're sanctified, that you are dying more and more into sin and living more and more into righteousness. If it means that you will eventually be glorified as Christ brings all of his people all of the way home. So I ask that you not lose heart, rather be encouraged. Be encouraged because of God's plan for the church. Be encouraged as you remember all that Christ has accomplished for you. Be encouraged as you remember future glory far outweighs present suffering. And I think Paul knows that it's far easier for him to write these things than it is for the Ephesians to not lose heart. And so do you know what Paul does next? He prays for them. He prays one of the richest and sweetest prayers that we find anywhere in the Bible. The next time we're in Ephesians, we're going to look at that. And I prayed part of this prayer for you before this sermon. I want to end it now with praying this prayer for you. So let's, let's pray. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.